Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, welcome to Drafting Archetypes. I'm Sam Black, and today we are going to talk about uh, five color commands or five color control in cube for anyone who is a limited guru or above in the drafting archetypes patreon i have posted the notes there it's pretty similar to a tier list with some ideas um, but if you want to check that out and follow along you can do that now so this cube is only going to be up for a few more days if you're listening to this not live, it might already not be up anymore. But I do think that a lot of these principles are going to apply to other cubes, especially future versions of the, of the arena cube. So hopefully this is still useful even if you're not able to play with it immediately. Unfortunately, that goes against a little bit of the ideal version of this podcast, but uh, we've wrapped up Strixhaven and we don't have any information about Forgotten Realms yet. So I'm going to be covering some other topics in the meantime. Today I am covering uh, Five Color in Cube because I have had a lot of success with it myself recently. I am currently in a 10-draft winning streak, so at least 7 wins in Premier or uh, 3-0 in Traditional in my last 10 Cube runs. Uh, Eight of them were with this archetype. I uh, played one with green, black, and one with mono black. But I have a lot of uh, experience and success behind what I'm saying here, so I feel reasonably confident in what I have to offer about drafting in this particular way. I would say that the approach um, to drafting this is pretty similar to um, a lot of the mentality that's discussed in Strixhaven control decks, particularly the like Demir learning curve type decks and the white control decks. Although I think colors matter even less in Cube, despite the fact that Strixhaven has environmental sciences, which allows you to somewhat ignore colors, uh, the dual lands and five color mana artifacts in this cube are so powerful that going into a draft, you can just commit to the idea that you don't particularly care what colors things are. Be careful about things that cost like three mana symbols of the same type and take lands, take fixing very highly. I've had a lot of drafts where at the end of the draft, I might have a single white card that costs white, white, and no other white cards at all, and go like, eh, maybe I should cut that card to make my mana a little bit easier. But I don't even think about what color cards are until I get to like deck building. Really, in this cube, with this kind of deck, you just don't worry about color at all. Just take the cards that have the effect that you're looking for. Once you get like late into a draft, you might want to start making some choices about which dual lands you're prioritizing and which early spells you're prioritizing based on your color balance. But for the most part, it just doesn't matter, which is certainly unusual. And the reason that that's possible is because this particular version of the cube that has all of these new inclusions from the Mystic Archives in particular, and uh, also the commands from the newest uh, historic anthologies. All of those cards, well, those cards in aggregate slow the cube down a bit, especially since the Mystic Archives are entirely spells. They don't apply a lot of pressure. And I believe the cube has gone through some intentional changes 
to uh, power down some of the best aggressive decks. Hazret is not in the cube anymore, for example, and a few other uh, good aggressive cards are gone. And the result has been that the aggressive cards, as far as uh, the aggressive decks, with very few exceptions that I've seen in the cube, have been really weak. They just don't apply enough pressure, they're not resilient enough, and if you have just like some resistance with a control deck, it's very hard for the aggressive decks to win. And that results in a lot of longer games where variations on control and mid-range decks are playing against each other. And so the five-color approach basically allows you to have all the best tools uh, to play those long games. One might think that in this framework, the best thing that you can do is just play some kind of like blue X control deck that just has um, a lot of counter spells or maybe prioritize like the mill cards that are strong against slower decks. But I haven't explored that space deeply, but I think that that's not the right approach. I think that there are still enough people who are trying to attack that if your deck has a bunch of cards that can't play defensively, like uh, the mill cards, for example, which really only have an like a proactive function, then you will like run into creature decks that attack you. Also, I think that there are good specific answers to the mill deck. Like if someone's trying to mill you, you can often like punk them out with Thassa's Oracle, where you either just like hold a Thassa's Oracle in your hand until the right time, or Thassa's Oracle Oracle gets milled, and then when you're about to die, like when your library is empty, you can instantly put it into play with Ojitai's command or shuffle it back with Quandrix's command and then play it. Also, a lot of the most threatening mill cards are permanents that can be answered fairly easily. So I think mill just falls under the category of like, it's exploitable the same way that all of the other proactive decks in this cube are exploitable. And the entire goal behind the way that I'm approaching this draft format is to not be exploitable. And so the way that I accomplish that is by prioritizing really, really cheap cards that trade up on mana and two-for-ones, and then super highly prioritizing things that can both generate card advantage and trade up on mana, um, which means, for example, Culligan's Command, which is relatively cheap and frequently a two-for-one, is one of the most highly prioritized cards in the cube. Once you're in this, okay, I'm not attacking, I'm a control deck space, you might, for example, prioritize removal, and um, you might be drawn to cards like Disfigure that are going to stop an opponent from beating you with an aggressive start. But uh, because aggro is weak and you're often playing these control mirrors, you want to be really careful about minimizing the number of cards that you have that are only good in some matchups. So you, you really want to prioritize ver versatile cards, which again is why I value the commands so highly, because they all have enough different modes that you can find a useful spot for them, which is why I refer to this deck somewhat jokingly as five color commands or command tribal, because I do think the commands, most of them, uh, not all of them, work really, really well in this format and in this strategy. Obviously something like a Tarka's command that's almost exclusively aggressive is not something that I'm looking for in this kind of deck. So that's the big picture kind of like background mindset that's at play here. I think one of the biggest questions I get is like, can you just like force this archetype every time? 
And I believe the answer is yes, you can and should. If, if you're trying to win, you should just go into every draft expecting that you're just going to play five color. Basically, the biggest question is like, well, what if other people are also prioritizing this and they're taking lands early and then you don't end up with a functional mana base? And mostly I've been able to solve that by having a good idea of which cards are absolutely essential. And if there isn't one of those, taking lands over everything. And if pack one, I get a lot of strong cards and I feel good about the power level of my deck, but I don't have any lands, then in pack two and three, I'll just take lands over literally anything. And you only need like around 10 dual lands, which might sound like a lot, but it's pretty achievable. Obviously, if you're on the low end of quality fixing in your lands, you just increase how highly you're prioritizing the spells that find lands and the artifacts that tap for five colors of mana and whatever other fixing you can find. I've had decks where the mana looks a little bit shaky, but um, it's never been bad enough to be an appreciable problem, really. Then as far as like the spell quality, it's like, well, what if everyone else is trying to draft the good cards too? Like, okay, well, I mean, you don't stop trying to draft good cards just because other people also want them. Obviously, in a world where the metagame was just exclusively people who draft like me, there might be a way to exploit this by finding, you know, resilient aggressive cards or something. But that's just not the way that Arena Cube is going to work. It's never going to be the case that it's all people drafting like me. And so I think that just like given the actual metagame you'll experience, I think that it is always safe to just draft this way. I've kind of grouped everything into super high priority cards, which are like the cards that I would take over Triumphs. And then I take Triumphs over everything that's not just like absolutely top tier. And then cards that are good, but not so good that I'd take them over a Triumph. And those things are usually competing with other dual lands. And then other cards that are playable in this archetype but I consider kind of like filler or replacement level. And then I've left off cards that I don't think should ever be in this kind of deck. Um, I'm not going to read off like everything in all of those categories, but I am going to go over the cards that I think are worth paying attention to because they're better than Triumphs, because it's not that long of a list. So the white cards that I think are really exciting are Swords to Plowshares, and then less confidently, <laughs> it might just be Swords to Plowshares, but also Approach of the Second Sun and Elish Norn, I think, are both exceptional. I've won a lot of games with Approach. It's pretty easy to do. There's like a lot of card draw, so you can find it again the second time very easily. And it's nice to have like a hard win condition that you basically know your opponent can't do anything about if they're not blue. So I've, I've had very good experiences with that. And it's such a unique effect that I think it's reasonable to prioritize very highly. And then Elish Norn is like similar spot where it just beats a lot of people by itself. Functions kind of like a sweeper when you play it. Uniquely good threat slash answer in the same card. But again, especially if like I'm already a little bit top heavy or if I have like Mizzix Mastery, so I'm looking to maximize spells or something like that, I could see myself taking a triumph over Elish Norn. All of these categories are a little bit blurry. Those are the best white cards. And then the next tier of white cards is just the Wraths, so Realm Cloak, Giant Cleansing, Nova, and Doomscar, and Elspeth Conquers Death. The other playable white cards are basically just like 
creatures that are also answers spot removal really really good independent creatures like Lyra Dawnbringer and Elite Spellbinder and then you basically want to ignore all of the like somewhat aggressive creatures or whatever else there is blue the top tier for me is Counterspell, Memory Lapse, Compulsive Research, Mythos of Aluna, Time Warp, and Torrential Gear Hulk. So Counterspells in general I think are really important. There are a bunch of them and you don't want too many, so I value the two mana hard counters more highly than all the others. I only want like one to three Counterspells in my deck. Memory Lapse is considerably worse than Counterspell. It might be a tier down, but I do like that it's only one in a blue as opposed to blue-blue. It's much easier to splash or to cast in this kind of deck. Compulsive Research is just great. Mythos of Aluna has really, really overperformed. Um, there are so many powerful permanents, and it combos really well with the Sphinx of the Lost Trove and just generally performs way better than I would have expected at first sight. Time Warp is better than like Alrun's Epiphany because it doesn't exile itself, so you can loop it and Torrential Gear Hulk. Like, there are so many really, 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 really strong instants that I think that it's another very exceptional threat. Also being instant speed is a really big deal. So those are the, like, absolute top-tier blue cards. There are a lot of other really, really good blue cards, but I think for the most part they're in the I take this below Triumph category. But, like, the next tier down is, like, Brainstorm, which, again, is... I mean, Brainstorm is awesome. Uh, there are enough ways to shuffle in this cube or to otherwise reset the top that most of the time that I've played Brainstorm, I have not had to redraw the cards that I put back. So it's been really, really good. Pact Negation, Thassa's Oracle. Thassa's Oracle, I mentioned before, is like kind of, you know, a unique effect similar to Approach to the Second Zones. I think it's a little bit harder to pull off, but it's also nice that it lets you like steal wins against Mill where they otherwise might beat you. I could see taking it over Triumphs, except I've had pretty good success with tabling it, and I also don't think it's like necessary, but it is very, very nice to have. So the other counter spell is like Disallow and Neutralize. Um, Midnight Clock is nice, but I think it's very, very rare that it actually goes off, because there's a lot of answers to artifacts and Shamus in this cube. Saw it coming is in the same kind of space as Disallow and Neutralize. Behold, the Multiverse is a very good card draw spell, but I think it's a little bit worse than Compulsive Research. Uh, Shark Typhoon, Alrun's Epiphany, uh, Sphinx of the Lost Trove, Sublime Epiphany. Um, Sublime Epiphany is obviously like amazing. I think some people have it in the top tier. I have some problems with just like it's a six mana spell. I mean, it's pretty comparable to Torrential Gear Hulk, so it's a little bit weird to have those groups separately. That's right around Triumph level for me. So those are the exceptional blue cards and then there's like there are tons and tons of blue cards that i'm happy to play because all the like opt think twice into the royal fibble thip type minor card advantage is good any of the like more expensive or more situational counters like commit and supreme well all of the like slightly less powerful card draw like boon of the wish giver there there's you know uh tezzeret like thrix voracious gear hulk or voracious great shark they're just like a lot of good blue cards the greatest number of cards that are good in this archetype are blue exceptional black cards <laughs> demonic tutor and noxious gear hulk that's it no those are the only ones that i think that i like over triumphs there are some others that are close so like the category of like super top tier black cards is very very small and then the category of notably good black cards is fairly large just based on how i grouped it and the fact that like there's a lot of you know borderline but doesn't quite make it over the the uh triumph hump for me so like that's the good discard spells like thoughts and agonizing remorse and uh elspeth conqueror's death 
Valky slash Tybalt, Mythos of Nethroi, like the really good removal, like Mythos of Nethroi, Baleful Mastery, Vasquez Contempt, Erebos' Intervention actually falls in the same category for me because the life gain is such a big deal. Really, really good, just like value creatures like Woe Strider and uh, Gaunti, Lord of Luxury, and then Languish. Uh, Demonic Pact is also in that category. And then in red, I think the like most exceptional stuff is... Uh, Lightning Bolt, Abrade, Bone Crusher Giant, Mizzix Mastery. This might be a little high on Abrade. Honestly, like all of those are like a little bit behind the top tier of other colors. Mizzix Mastery is great, but I have occasionally like drafted it and just my deck hasn't had the right kind of spells where I'm happy to do it. Or I'm concerned about it interfering with like an infinitely recursive graveyard, which is something that I prioritize fairly highly. But the ceiling on Mystic's Mastery is obviously great. And then Bone Crusher, Braid, and, Light and uh, Lightning Bolt are just, the, you know, some of the best cheap removal to, you know, stay alive that's like versatile enough that it's not bad against control decks. And then the tier down from that, Sweltering Suns, Chandra Torture Defiance, Rekindling Phoenix, Glorybringer, Shatter Skull Smashing, Crush the Weak. That's, you know, the few good threats that are, you know, threat plus answer like Chandra and Glorybringer. Um, and then Double Vision. Double Vision is a card that I kind of overlooked because it's an expensive red enchantment. Um, they don't have great history, but it's more similar to Mar Marari's Wake, which is a card that I'm very high on that I like kind of first processed. Doubling your spells is really, really good, and I play a lot of spells. My issue with all of those cards, like Demonic Pact, Double Vision, and Marari's Wake, is that you basically need to untap with all of them for that for it to really be profitable, and there's a lot of removal for artifacts and enchantments. I thought that maybe artifact like enchantments would be harder to kill than artifacts, so I actually looked into it, and there are like three cards in the cube that kill artifacts and not enchantments, two cards in the cube that kill enchantments and not artifacts, and tons and tons and tons of cards that kill both. So the reason that I'm not higher on these four and five mana cards that generate really, really powerful effects is that I do think that they offer a window to be minorly exploited, where you play this sorcery speed card that offers really big returns, but your opponent can often answer it in, at instant speed and or for less mana and or in a way that generates card advantage. And so that's why I see those as in the like good threat tier rather than the actual premium card tier. So then green, uh, my top tier is Regrowth, Cultivate, Primal Command, and Thrag Tusk. This might be higher than one could expect for Regrowth in particular, since it seems kind of similar to like Belaged Recovery, and in general these effects like haven't been that exceptional. Two mana instead of three I find to just be really big on um, get anything back from my graveyard. And as you play long games, regrowth just, you know, more and more closely approaches Demonic Tutor, where it's just like two mana get the effect that I want. I really value the combination of regrowth with Primal Command or Quandrix Command to be able to loop your deck. Largely, I talk about that kind of stuff as just like, this is something that Sam enjoys. This gets to a space that's very similar to like the Clear the Mind deck in the set where clear the mind existed for people who have experience with that where it honestly does come up and does matter um i have had drafts where i've gone through my deck multiple times in 
more than one game. And I think it's just really powerful to be able to do that, plus to just like get back your best cards since the best cards in the cube are so good. And then Cultivate is just the best like ramp slash fixing. And Thrag Tusk is exceptional among these like value threats because it's both really, really hard to profitably answer and basically impossible um, if it resolves and really good at making sure that you don't lose to people who are attacking you or whatever. Like the game, the, just all the parts of the Ragtusk are really important. Green is another one with just tons and tons of like good but not top top type cards. Abundant Harvest Explorer, Scavenging Ooze, Belegate Recovery, Elvish Rejuvenator, Lenore Visionary, Reclamation Sage, Eskis Chariot, Wildest Dreams, Oracle of Moldiah, Vastwood Surge, Wilderness Reclamation, Elder Gargaroth, Kogla, Olvenwald Hydra, Beanstalk Giant, Hornet Queen, Voracious Hydra. Most of that is like value threats or ramp slash fixing. I guess Wilderness Reclamation is kind of in the powerful enchantment type space. It's a little bit more narrow, but really good if you have the instance to take advantage of it. Olvenwald Hydra, I guess, is uh, in the both value threat and fixing slash ramp space. Uh, Wildest Dreams is super powerful. I think people underrate that card. Obviously, exiling itself means that it doesn't do some of what regrowth does, but getting back two or three cards of your choice is pretty huge. Notably, the mana creatures like Llanowar Elf don't appear on this list for me. It's just so easy to answer cheap creatures, and in the case of Llanowar Elf, it doesn't fix your mana anyway. The games aren't fast enough that I feel like I need to ramp in that way, and I think that it, again, just offers a point where you can be exploited, where it lets your opponents get remove, get value from there. Electrolyze, Colgan's Command, Prismari Command, and Bonecrusher Giant all like trade up on cards against it which is a pretty big problem. It can also get caught up in sweepers or whatever. So I think that creature-based ramp is somewhere between I don't want this in my deck and um, more of the interchangeable filler type space. The gold cards that are super premium for me, Electrolyze, Lorehold Command, Magma Opus, Culligan's Command, Find Finality, uh, Escaped the Wilds, and Lightning Helix. I think what all those do is pretty self-explanatory. Magma Opus is like expensive enough that I thought about not including it in this list, but it's just so powerful. And, you know, there's a lot of instant speed two for ones that don't cost a ton of mana. Lightning Helix is just unbelievable at making you not lose to aggressive decks. Lightning Bolt meets Thrag Tusk. And then Escape to the Wilds is five mana value card that generates a lot of cards, where like there are other five mana value cards that generate fewer cards. And then the Tier down from that is basically the more expensive or less powerful commands and powerful planeswalkers. Basically cards that have analogs and categories and other places that I've talked about. So Ojitai's Command, Silumgar's Command, Sphinx's Revelation, uh, Silver Quill Command, Kaya, Ashiok, Prismari Command, Quandrix Command, Spring to Mind, and Mirari's Wake. Those are the best gold cards. And then colorless cards... So this includes lands that are better than Triomes for me are Golos, Field of the Dead. I think those are my one and two cards in the cube overall. Uh, Fabled Passage, Maze Mind Tome, Karn, Scion of Urza, and Solemn Simulacrum. And then very, very good, but below Triomes for me are Cold Steel Heart, Mindstone, Prophetic Prism, Treasure Map, Chromatic Lantern, Crystalline Giant, Cultivator's Caravan, and Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger. 
So if your deck is composed entirely of cards that are in one of those two lists, the top tier and the second tier, it's really hard for me to imagine you wouldn't have a really successful run. You know, as long as you have kind of similar things that you're valuing. So if you're looking for cheap removal and then like if you're willing to spend more mana on something, you make sure that like it's an instant and or you get something up front when you play it. That should basically guide you to not playing any of the bad cards and only playing cards that make sense in the archetype. As far as prioritizing lands, so Fabled Passage number one, or Fabled Passage and Field of the Dead, top, top, then the Triomes, then the Checklands, which are the lands that want you to have land with a basic land type, then the Shocklands, which are the cards that um, have basic land types, but you have to pay life for them to enter the battlefield untapped, then temples and pathways are kind of interchangeable and then the worst dual land cycle is the lands that come into play untapped in the early turns because the games you play are so long that they are going to come into play tapped most of the time and then uh cards like the bad fabled passages evolving wild and terramorphic expanse should be prioritized as a function of like basically when you're short on dual lands and so you're going to have to play a lot of basics those move up because they do heavy lifting and you'll have more options for them but if things are going really well and you have a lot of dual lands you don't want those because they come into play untapped and you might run out of things to search for or you might not want to play all the basics so they might have fewer options or something like that so those ones are going to depend more on your deck i do early on prioritize check lands and lands with types considerably ahead of the other lands. I generally try to table the other lands, whereas I might take a check land or a shock land over some of the cards in my high tier but not top tier uh, category early in a draft, whereas I'll basically take Kaya over like a temple or something, unless it's late in the draft and I'm short on lands, and then I can easily shift just every dual land over everything in that mid-tier category. I think there are a lot of really powerful uh, like artifacts and enchantments that you might value more highly than I have here, like Bolas's Citadel, the Great Henge, Hedron Archive, the Immortal Sun, Gilded Lotus, Sky Sovereign. Basically, like I said, I think there's just a ton of removal for artifacts and enchantments. I think that you should be playing cards like Wilt and Forsake the Worldly. Those are all in the like, well, you know, solid one for one, which means main deck filler type space. But uh, between those and the commands that answer artifacts and enchantments and, you know, Reclamation Sage and whatever else. There are just a lot of ways to get your artifacts and enchantments killed. Again, Elspeth Conquers Death would be another that, like, generates value for your opponent in a very meaningful way. So I do try to uh, just, like, not go crazy for any of that stuff. The more expensive, the more you should deprioritize it, kind of regardless of what it does. Because what you want to be asking yourself is like, how bad is it for me if my opponent answers this? Obviously, there's some amount of like verse, how much do I get if it sticks? That's why all that stuff's not super highly valued. You also might notice uh, there are some other cards like the Scarab God, which are certainly in my, this is a playable card, but it's nothing special to me since it doesn't generate any immediate value. It's a five mana card that my opponent can answer, which again, feels uh, like it leaves me in a spot that's pretty exploitable, especially since it's sorcery, uh, like a sorcery commitment to five mana that can both be countered or like exiled when it enters or my opponent can bounce it or kill it and then make me spend more time on it or whatever. So just in general, 
like high risk, high reward cards are not what I'm looking for. I guess I mentioned that cards like Wilt and Lay Claim are appealing to me, um, even though those are just one for ones. Uh, the fact they cycle there uh, matters a lot. I have Lightning Bolt and a Braid rated very highly, but I think it drops off pretty quickly with cards like Shock and um, Disfigure and even Eliminate that are more narrow. You can play some of that stuff, and you should have a little bit, but you really want to be careful not to have more than a couple cards that like only answer small creatures, for example. Similarly, counterspells are very good, but it is possible to have too many and to just position yourself in a spot where like can't you know you don't have enough other stuff and that again can lead to an exploitable deck where you're creating a way that you can lose which i think is largely avoidable i respect that uh cards like the folio that mills the opponent and sphinx's tutelage are like strong cards that can win games but they're not personally how i want to go about it because i think that they just like lead to spaces where you lose and can't really do anything about it, like when your opponent has Thassa's Oracle or Jace, and also spots where like they just don't have any play against people who aren't going to lose to getting milled um, like because they're attacking you too quickly or something. But you do want to be aware of that stuff. And I guess like Ashiok is kind of an exception for me, which maybe it shouldn't be, but I think that exiling the graveyard matters a lot, and I think that preventing search matters a little, and it's also like cheap and has like a reasonable immediate impact, like milling right away and exiling their graveyard right away. That's enough to put it into the space of like, I actively want this card and consider it exceptional without it being a top, top tier kind of thing. So that's the mill card that I like the most. I guess another thing to, to acknowledge is that how you play the game really matters a lot. Um, this is like a super skill intensive format because the games are really long and really interactive and it's very much about getting the most out of your cards and finding spots where you can generate two for ones and, you know, finding like, okay, is this card that they've played right now worth using this answer that I have that might be one of my more versatile answers? Or should I, if I have like three cards that answer this at better value and answer fewer things, I don't have them right now, but I might draw them. Like if they play a small creature and I have a Vraska's Contempt, should I use my Vraska's Contempt on this small creature or should I wait until I draw one of Colgan's Command, Lightning Bolt, and some other removals for a small creature? There's just a lot of like how to use your removal, how to bait your opponent's removal, like what to counterspell type decision. And then also just like a lot of like setting up kind of like fancy plays using your like torrential gear hulks and sublime epiphanies and sphinx of the lost troves and mythos valunas to like generate the most value that's i mean kind of neither here nor there but it is really noteworthy one thing that it says is i can't guarantee that you're going to win if you draft this way and get a good deck because so much of it is in the gameplay if you're not comfortable playing this style of magic it might not work out well you might be better served by an aggressive deck if that's what you're used to or something um cube is certainly a format where different players have really different preferences and playing to your own strengths can matter this works for me and i'm confident that it leads to strong decks but there there is certainly room to give up a lot of the like potential equity that the strength of your cards could convey if you aren't maximizing them i don't know that i have a lot of great tips about <laughs> how to do that 
as far as like just general statements, unfortunately, but um, I, I will acknowledge that it's real. Another thing to mention is that like cheap cards are good and you do want to have some of them to answer your opponent's cheap stuff and everything. But relative to other archetypes, other formats, I would say cur your curve is shockingly unimportant. The expensive cards that I want to play, I want to play despite the fact that they're expensive for a reason, and most of them are good at catching you up from behind. And so I've, I've certainly had plenty of games where I keep a hand that's just a bunch of expensive spells, and it looks like I'm losing, and then I start casting my spells and take over the game really, really quickly. And I've also had decks where I felt like, oh, I have a lot of like cheap low-impact stuff. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to like have enough like power to win. And it's like, well, these like cheap cards are you know really strong, and I I want them despite the fact they're cheap for a reason, and they like get me to an a sufficiently advantageous board state that like my smaller number of expensive powerful spells are able to win. I think that it's more about raw card quality than it is about building like a curve or game plan or anything. Obviously you do want to like figure out how your deck is going to win, but it's not as hard as you probably think it is to do that. So like the way where this comes up is like, okay, do I have a way to loop my deck like regrowth primal command? Or do I have a way to like you know, get a relatively guaranteed win, like Approach the Second Sons or um, Thassa's Oracle. If I have something obvious like that, then basically nothing else matters. Like, I don't need to figure out, like, how am I going to win? Or Mizzix's Mastery is probably in a similar space as long as you have stuff that has an impact to have a, you know, Mastery wins the game type turn. If you don't have that kind of thing, then, okay, you need a couple of creatures that are finishers, but you don't need very many. Uh, Field of the Dead is another card that can do most of the work there. The basic game plan that you're looking for is just like, all right, do I have all my bases covered more than like, is this deck doing a thing? Winning the game eventually is a base that you have to have covered. Um, can I answer enchantments and artifacts? Can I beat Approach to the Second Sun? Stuff like that is like, those are bases that you need to have covered. You need to figure out like, what are the powerful things that I need to not lose to? Does my deck have something that's going to make me not lose to them? Like, if my opponent plays one of the 3-1 white creatures that can get indestructible on turn two, am I just going to die or do I have like a reasonable answer to it? You want to, you know, just like check off all those boxes. One of, one of the main ones that I look for is like, do I have life gain? Um, I want like, ideally, you know, two or three cards that can gain a reasonable amount of life. You know, you want to be able to answer all the different card types. And this is what I was saying about, like, it's good if you have a counter spell or two. Um, but it, again, it's it's much more just like, do I have my bases covered? than do I have a game plan? And then you'll often just, like, work out your game plan on the fly. All right. So uh, I think that that's what I have that I can tell you about drafting the way that I draft. Happy to cover questions. As always, I want to thank uh, my patrons this week. Thank you very much for joining the uh, Patreon and supporting this podcast, Owen, Jacob, Rebecca, and Anthony. If you are benefiting a lot from this podcast or interested in perks that are available, we would just ask that you check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. And let's see if there are any questions. First question how do you answer mail if you don't have the oracle? So 
A lot of answering mail is answering specific cards. So like you can answer patient rebuilding or um, like all, all of the mill enchantments and artifacts, you can just answer as enchantments and artifacts. As far as like, okay, now my opponent's milled me a bunch. You can primal command if you've drawn it. You can have more regrowths to make sure that you get it back. You can have regrowths to find your answers to artifacts and enchantments um, and or game winning cards. I've done stuff like play approach then they mill it, and then I wait until they deck me, and then I Quandrix command my approach back in uh, my upkeep, and then cast it and win the game. Like, Quandrix command to get a card that's going to win the game back is another good one. But, I mean, for the most part, the answer is you, like, beat the cards that are... You answer the cards that are going to mill you. To the extent that it is a hard-to-answer and inevitable threat, it will beat you. The same way that you're like, how do you beat you? your opponent attacking you for 20? Well, if they're attacking you for 20, you lose the game if you can't gain life. But you don't have to gain life to stop it. You can also just kill the creatures. There's a lot of removal for the enchantments and artifacts, and most of the milling that happens in this cube is done by permanents. So just have plans to beat those permanent types, and you should be okay. Next question is whether I feel like the deck works better in best of one, one or best of three. I've played it in both. I don't think it matters very much. Obviously, because you're drafting lands very highly, you don't have a large sideboard to work with, but I don't think that matters a whole lot. Since the deck is designed around being unexploitable, I don't think that your opponent can sideboard especially well against you. They might add a couple more slightly hard-to-answer threats, but you should already be ready to cover those. You'll also likely end up with a couple of like overly narrow answers in your sideboard that you can uh, bring in in certain matchups where they line up well. And um, having those like overly narrow answers can really benefit you. Just like getting more cheap removal is really good for control decks, obviously. Suggestion that uh, sideboarding is a smaller difference between best of one and best of three than hand smoother, which I think is a valid point that I hadn't given a lot of thought to. I don't have a strong reason to believe that that would favor like this deck or a different deck more, though. Um, I do think that this deck is generally, since it's like prioritizing cheap spells and card draw and stuff, like as resistant to mulliganing as you can get. Um, it's not like you need to curve out or anything. You just need to make sure that you have your answers. Um, so again, I, I don't see that as a big difference in your win rate. Next question is about Hornet Queen and like the fact that it costs green, green, green. So I have Hornet Queen in the like above average, like notable, I want this card, but not total bomb category, which is broadly where I have good threats that like generate value immediately. It's expensive enough that uh, it'll be bad in some spots or your opponent might counter it, but it's really, really, really good at stabilizing you. As far as the mana cost, if you have you know, 10 dual lands in your deck, by the time you have seven lands in play, it's really hard to not have three green. Intense mana costs matter in the early game, but like by the time you're casting Hornet Queen, you've likely both drawn a lot of lands, several of which are dual lands. You've also had a chance to draw your like artifacts that tap for five for mana of any color and played cards like Cultivate and uh, Vastwood Surge. So you've like done a lot of setting up of your mana at that point. So I, I think that like intense color requirements generally don't matter by the time you're at seven mana, um, but does matter for cheaper cards.
Next question, how should one handle handle aggro matchups? Again, there's a lot of cheap removal that you really want, right? Like I, I, I mentioned Lightning Helix, Lightning Bolt, Bonecrusher Giant, Electrolyze, Coligan's Command. Like all of those are top tier cards. All the sweepers are top tier or one tier down. And I mentioned that you want to make sure that you have some life gain. I rate Erebos' intervention very highly um, as like removal plus life gain. If you just have like a normal amount of that stuff, it's really, really hard for the aggressive decks because again, they're starting at such a disadvantage on card quality that if you can answer a few of the threats and make their game go long enough, that you can play these like value creatures that stabilize, you know, like Thrag Tusk is the best, um, but if you don't have that, maybe you play an Elder Gargaroth and they don't answer it, or maybe you just like, you know, you don't have that, maybe you just play a Cloud Blazer and like that trades off with the thing and draws you some cards and gains some life and then you use those to answer their other stuff. Really, if you make it to the point where you can cast like a five mana spell, you're in pretty good shape against the aggro decks and you really only need one or two removal spells to get to that point. Cards that look great but end up being a trap, I think that's largely the high reward artifacts and enchantments that I talked about and the like premium like format defining threats and it's not so much that they're traps as that they aren't as good as they look. So that would be stuff like the Scarab God, Glorybringer, Most Planeswalkers, the Immortal Sun. Just every expensive, powerful card is good, not great, and might look like it should be a higher pick than it is. Few really quick questions that I've covered but can reiterate. The best dual lands are the check lands followed by the shock lands outside of the triumphs. Time walk effects are really powerful. I think time warp is in the absolute top tier of cards and Alrun's Epiphany is a tier down from that. And Professor Onyx is to me like low end of good planeswalker. So I think it's like worse than Kaya, probably better than Vivian in this cube or in this style of deck because Vivian wants you to be creature dense in a way that's sort of a problem um, which puts it at low end of exceptionally good in the powerful threat that generates immediate advantage category but only barely there because it's so expensive. I'm going to wrap this up. I will be back next week with something. I haven't decided yet. Uh, again we're not going to be ready for Forgotten Realms yet and we have covered Strixhaven. I know there's been some interest in Modern Horizons 2. I believe Dominaria will be available on Arena. There are a few options, and I don't know what I'm going to cover at this point, but uh, hopefully it can be another pretty interesting one-off where, you know, something where I don't need to cover the entire format in a, like, balanced way to feel like I've given something useful for a substantial portion of drafts um, in that uh, format. So uh, we'll see what that is later. Uh, thanks for tuning in and goodbye for now, everyone.